listener exclusive. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which it is recorded. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first storytellers of this land. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, as well as any Indigenous people who may be listening today. Hello and welcome to Two Guys One Cup Summer Edition. I'm Charlie Clawson and this is my club, the show where I sit down with some well-known supporters to chat about the clubs they love and sometimes hate. And my guest this week, well, she is all over the footy landscape, afl.com.au. It is, of course, Sarah Ollie. Welcome to the show. Hello, Charlie. I'm not sure if I'm one of the most famous supporters, but definitely one of the most passionate when it comes to the Swans. And I think I've almost managed to erase last year's grand final from my head. Oh, well, I didn't want to start with that, but you've opened the gate. <laughs> so let's talk about last year for the Swans, because that's really what uh, I, I want to get into is um, what it was like to have that sort of ride last year. It was We're sort of used to the Swans over the last 20 years or so. They are like a Geelong. They're just one of those clubs that always seem to perform. But last year had a bit of magic about it, didn't it? Yeah, I think it was a bit of a ride. It was kind of similar to being a Collingwood fan. Of course, we didn't have that series of close wins, but it's such a young group when you were looking across the ground and you're looking at the likes of, you know, Errol Goulden and Nick Blakey and even Tom Papley's not that old. I think he's only 25, but seeing the emergence of a Logan McDonald and a Dylan Stevens, these are just kids. So I wasn't really expecting them to finish top four, let alone make a grand final. And to see them get through was was such an incredible experience. I think it probably was a little bit premature. I think now we we know that because, you know, the joke was with Geelong entering last season is that they were dad's army, but the joke was really on everyone else because they looked like big men in that grand final and the Swans, they did look like little boys who just went up to the task. So, yes, I am lucky to go for a team, which I think is always thereabouts and at least gives it a bit of a red-hot crack. But having said that, Charlie, we have now lost the last three grand finals. I don't like it. I do not like losing on grand final day. You do not feel good for the entire summer. Well, your dad's a Saints supporter. So when it comes to <laughs> losing grand finals, you're chatting to an expert. I mean, I've been to four grand finals in my lifetime and not seen one victory. So I know all about that. I mean, with the Swans though, did you sort of feel like I mean, it could go two ways, couldn't it? Because you do, you have the Baby Bombers, you have Hawthorne in 2008, you have the Doggies in 2016. There's no reason that a, a team can't be ahead of schedule. Like clearly the Swans were building towards something. They had a, you know, a couple of backward steps just to sort of build that list. And they seem to have this, this momentum. But the interesting thing now is what happens psychologically to the team, because I don't think the Swans have had a challenge like this maybe since 
mm, maybe the West Coast kind of rivalry of the mid 2000s, like the idea that, but that was at least a one point difference and you had like an arch rival. This one is kind of a more humiliating kind of loss. I mean, look, again, your father's a Saint supporter. I'm a Saint supporter. <laughs> when it comes to humiliation, <laughs> we have PhDs. <laughs> but for you, it must be kind of like a new experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, the 2014 grand final against Hawthorne, that was, I think, a 63 or 64 point loss, which also wasn't all that fun, particularly because we were coming into that match with huge expectations and really were the overwhelming favourites on that day. But as you say, Mm. 81-point loss is humiliating. And I remember it must have been during the third quarter I was sitting with some colleagues and I'm looking around going, what's the biggest grand final margin ever? Because it it had that feel about it that perhaps it was going to blow out to a three-figure margin, which happened to Port Adelaide not so long ago. And, you know, you you listen to some of the players that were out there that day and the scars are there. They are damaging. It's hard to walk away from a game like that, you know, the biggest game, the biggest spectacle of the year and think, is that all we could muster? And even if you look at some more recent performances, I mean when teams have lost big in grand finals, even the Western Bulldogs against Melbourne in 2021, I mean, they were up in the third term and go on to lose by Mm. a huge margin and really were underwhelming in 2022. So history would show that if there is that big margin in a grand final, sides traditionally don't bounce back. The only thing I would say about the Swans is they are across the board quite young. So I wonder if they are a little bit immune to that scarring and if having that experience of coming down to Melbourne um, and having that experience of being here for grand final week will actually serve them in the long run. I mean, I've got my fingers crossed, um, but we'll know in about, what, seven or so months' time, won't we? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because you mentioned, you know, 2014, sorry, was it 2014, the Hawthorne grand final? Yeah, and then 2016 against the Bulldogs. And, you know, both games you're relative favourites. But it's funny, like I actually had forgotten that, that, you know, the margins of those games, the Bulldog was a bit closer. But I wonder if you're right, like for the older players, for like a buddy or, or someone like that, maybe there is some kind of doubts in the mind. I remember like Nick Revolt talking about, um, you know, that's what he felt happened to St Kilda after 2010 is like, well, we sacrificed everything to get there two years in a row and both times we fell short. So when it gets to 2011, you're like, ugh, like another preseason, got to dig deep, got to put up with injuries, fluctuating form, like is it even worth it? But maybe because you have this sort of regenerated team and more youth in there that there's going to be less scarring. I mean, you could only hope, right? I mean, fingers, toes and every <laughs> limb in my body cross. But I mean, look, who knows? The psychology in sport is fascinating. And one thing that the Swans definitely do have is a strong culture. And I think that's known across the league. It's perhaps been the envy across the league at times. And John Longmire, who just recently signed on again at the Swans and is already the longest serving coach at the club, he is fantastic in that regard, in fostering an incredible culture and an incredible sense of belonging. So I think if anyone can pick a side up again, John Longmire is a coach who can do it. Having said that, though, it's still incredibly difficult to make grand finals, let alone Mm. win one. So, you know, will they make a grand final again? They probably won't this coming season. That's just the way the system works. You're not actually meant to make it every year. And I was recently at a Blues event and Brian Cook, who was formerly the Geelong CEO and now at Carlton, he said there's a reason, you know, Geelong won in 07, 09 and 11 and they didn't win those grand finals necessarily in a row because 
it's bloody hard to do, even for really yeah. good sides. And we've only seen it with a few sides uh, since the turn of the century with the Lions, of course. Uh, Richmond went back to back recently. But Richmond supporters would also say, we probably should have got there in 2018. That was a season when during the home and away part of the year, they looked unbeatable. But what Geelong also showed this year is it's about timing your run. And Chris Scott was so deliberate in resting and managing some of the older players. Yeah. I remember people were ridiculing him because he was resting players in round three, like so early in the season. Yeah. But it was all part of the bigger plan. It was all about building yeah. towards that final Saturday in September and Chris Scott and Dad's Army had the last laugh. It's funny, I was thinking about this upcoming season and generally like there's always a couple of teams that seem to be sort of like, you know, far ahead of the other teams. But I've watched a few of the preseason games and I'm like, oh, yeah, well, Geelong will probably be back. Oh, but Melbourne could be back. But Brisbane have got Ashcroft. But then the Swans <laughs> could bounce back. But then Collingwood. And I'm like, oh, my yeah. God, there's probably like six teams that conceivably off last year's form at least and with some inclusions could make the grand final this year. So you're right. Like it was a golden opportunity last year and there are no guarantees. Yeah, and that's the thing as well. I think there's going to be some good sides this year who miss out on the eight. And traditionally we see a shift where two sides will fall out of the eight and two sides will rise. Recently it's sometimes even been three and three. So, you know, you're looking at who finished out of the eight last year and trying to do the maths and figuring well, I guess for me, I'm like a Carlton going to bounce up and maybe Port Adelaide because even after that really slow start where they lost six in a row, they were really good towards the back end of the year. I mean, is it finally the time for the Gold Coast Suns to play finals? Yeah. But then who's not going to make it? I mean, I guess you could mount a case for teams like the Dogs, maybe even Fremantle. Uh, but who's to say that those teams are going to fall out either? So it's it's so tight. It's There's probably 12 teams that you wouldn't be surprised if they made the top eight, let alone perhaps even the top six. Let's wind back a little bit now. We started with the most recent Swans news. We'll go back to the oh. very, very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as we mentioned, your father was a Saints supporter. So I'm always fascinated with how like families end up barracking for teams because in my household, it was all Saints. Like there wasn't even an option to barrack for another team. But your father sounds like a very sensible, you know, and loving father who was like, I'm not <laughs> going to force my daughter in this direction. Is that what happened? Well, the the family connection actually goes beyond my father. My grandfather, his father, Alan, played 50 games for the Saints as a, right. I guess, I I was doing a bit of reading about him lately because the Saints, as you know, it's their 150th year. So I was just looking into it a little bit more and he was described as, I guess, what a tagger would be today. He was quite a diminutive little fellow, but um, he played 50 games. So really I should be going for St Kilda, but my I don't really have any recollection of ever going for St Kilda except the way Dad tells me is that as soon as I could speak, I guess, I said, who should I go for? And he said, do not go for St Kilda. They'll give you a lifetime of misery. And I'm going, hmm. he goes, but you can support Plugger Locket. Plugger will never let you down. And of course, as we know, Plugger Locket, when I was about five years old, famously moves up to the Sydney Swans and that's history. I've always gone for the Swans. I don't remember ever going for St Kilda. I've obviously always had a fascination and obsession with 
plug a locket and I guess the big forwards that have followed him um, up to the swans, of course, Barry Hall being another that left St Kilda. But um, Well, we have a tradition of just like handing the swans fantastic (laughs) key position players, like even Paddy McCartan who couldn't stay on the park with us. It's like every Saints supporter, like as soon as you had that game last year, we were just like, of course, like of course. <laughs> yeah. Another key position player has gone in the Swans virtually for nothing and turns into a virtually an all-Australian centre-half back. Yeah, thanks for that. I've quite enjoyed the addition <laughs> You're welcome. of Paddy. I mean, I think also back. too that may, I didn't realise you were responsible for Tony Lockett moving to the Swans, but maybe that's <laughs> it. Maybe there's some kind of like correlation <laughs> there as well. So then growing up, um, what was the sort of the, the golden era of this, like the Swans as a kid for you? Like, we, Was it the sort of 2000s sort of team, the, the, pre, the drought-breaking premiership team? Yeah, so I was at the 05 grand final. I was also at the 06 grand final. And obviously coming into 2005, um, I was only a 15-year-old then, but, you know, you were hearing the history about these South Melbourne supporters and I'm living in South Melbourne now, so I'm, I'm in that heartland of old South Melbourne. Um, you know, just, just the heartache that these supporters, some had never seen a flag, some saw one when they were four years old because of this 72-year drought, the longest then in the history of the AFL. And as a 15-year-old, you kind of wrap your head around it, but... Not really, not fully until, yeah. you know, you're seeing the aftermath, you know, after Leo Burrows taking that screamer and, you know, there were 80-year-old there were people around you crying, bawling their eyes out because they've finally been able to see this flag or this second flag. So um, that was incredible and that rivalry between the Swans and the Eagles was so storied. There were so many epic battles. I mean, four points one year, one point the next in grand finals is as yeah. tight as you'll get. And all the finals and, and home and away games in that four-year period. Absolutely. And it was always, for me, it was kind of interesting coming up against the Eagles because if you looked at their engine room, it was like star-studded. It was yeah. like the Ferrari, whereas the Swans was more like a Holden or, or a Toyota or something. It was much more <laughs> blue-collar coming up against yeah. the likes of, you know, Dean Cox and Kerr and Juddy. Like they were just so incredible, but the Swans found some way to match it with them, even though they were lesser lights. But I've got to say, one of the best days of my life was the 2012 flag. That is the one for me that absolutely stands out. I think perhaps because we weren't favourites on that day. It was a really seesawing match. Both sides had momentum at different points in time. And in the end, it goes down to the last couple of minutes and that crazy goal from Nick Malczewski, which just floated off the boot and over the head of the goal umpire. That was, that's the memory for me that still kind of gives me goosebumps. And yes, I have watched that replay about 400 times. Yeah, I think that Adam Goods' performance Mm. in that grand final as well, like on one leg, Mm -hmm. I mean, before the Malczewski goal, he kicks one, which is just as like heroic, which really kind of gives you the momentum. But yeah, I agree that 2012 is probably the most, like the Drought-breaking one is fantastic and emotional, but 2012, in terms of like your underdog story, your kind of Rocky film, like it doesn't <laughs> get much more inspiring than that. Can I ask about the 2005 grand final though? Mm-hmm. Um, were there any harsh words between you and your father about the prelim oh, where Barry Hall punched yes. Matt McGuire in the guts? Clearly like miles yes. off the ball and we're still allowed to play the next week? Oh, 
And I was such an obnoxious little shit at the end of that match as well. Like I was literally like standing up and like cheering St Kilda oh, supporters God. out in that last term because we kind of went nuts in that last quarter. It had been really yeah. close up until then. Adam and then- Schneider, of all people, was the <laughs> one who just went berserk in the last quarter and killed us. Uh, yes, so the gut punch does still get brought up. Yes, <laughs> indeed it does. So certainly some water to go under the bridge there. But having said that, Dad has always supported the Swans when when they've been the team that's that's playing. So he's enjoyed a little bit of that fun and success too. But yes, there have been some testing moments. So you mentioned the culture of the Swans, and obviously the the Bloods thing is dating back to South Melbourne. That's sort of woven into the DNA of the club. But do you feel, and this is my observation, feel free to refute it, that there has been a changing in that culture lately, maybe a product or a, a byproduct of the success the Swans have had in the last 20 years? Because I sort of have found like that Swan supporters, you know, in the 2000s, you know, when I first moved up to, to Sydney, there was this kind of underdog ragtag, like there was definitely your expat supporters, like ex-Victorians or whatever. But then, you know, you sort of local kind of supporters who are just getting to know the game and they've sort of been rusted on and now they've had kids and there's this new generation of Swan supporters. But I'm going to sound like an old man ranting on some talkback radio, but I feel there is a new generation of Swan supporters who feel like, oh, this is just the way it is, like that we're just a successful team and, you know, that Bloods culture, the no dickheads policy that they had in the 2000s, like that is sort of to the side now where it's it's like they are, to me, the West Coast of the East Coast. Like they are a big club, they dominate that kind of market and that there is an expectation from their supporters of excellence. Like this sort of idea of being this ragtag, you know, like you said yourself, that uh, blue collar midfield, that doesn't e- exist anymore. I think that you are now like a blue chip team. Yeah, I'd have to say I agree with that. And maybe to an extent when it comes to the expectations of supporters. But I know for a fact that when players walk through the doors of the club, they are given a very insightful history into what it means to be a Swans player and what it means to have you know, to emanate from this Bloods culture. And they'll and they'll get the likes of Brett Kirk coming in. They'll get the likes of, you know, Adam Goods coming in. They'll get the likes of Jared McVeigh coming in, who will instill in them what it is to be part of this living and breathing organism, which didn't start in Sydney, which started mm. in South Melbourne and, and moved up to, in 1982 to become the Sydney Swans. So I think that whilst maybe you're right, this new brand of supporter is probably used to this pretty flashy, <laughs> this flashy club, you know, who's had yeah. flashy forwards, you know, whether and it be And the SCG from, is like a yeah. cool ground to go to. It's great. Like if you catch a Twilight game at the SCG, it is a, they serve sushi instead of like <laughs> hot dogs, you know, like that's the one thing I can't get my head around. And even the way like in New South Wales, it's different to how Victorian supporters, and I imagine South Australian and Western Australian supporters, like it's a a different style of supporting. It's much more civil. You know? Oh my God, it's polite. Yeah. That's, that's, that is actually so true because every time I'm up at the SCG and I have the best experience, and as you say, a twilight match when the sun is setting over the SCG, chef's kiss, like so beautiful, but they they politely clap opposition goals. What is that? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I actually went, I flew down, I live in the Northern Rivers, I flew down for the Saints-Swans game last year in which we got absolutely humiliated and it made it worse because I was on the wing surrounded by Swan supporters and like at least if they were giving me stick, 
you know, you'd be like, okay, it's fine. I can deal with this. Like, but they were being so nice and condescending to me. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh, this is, I feel like I was a make a wish kid or something like that. They'd come to watch, you know, my team play on the SCG. Uh, but last, let's talk about some of these like new superstars, mm-hmm. um, you know, that are coming through at the at the Swans. Like, did you, f- what is the feeder program? I, I mean, not to talk about the Riverina or, you know, any of those like Eddie, uh, Eddie Maguire's problems with the, the mm. drafting up there. But in terms of the system that the Swans have in place, because it is remarkable, like they got like a, a player comes into that system and then they just come out like this, ultra professional, they just seem so well drilled considering they're playing a lot of, you know, they're traveling a lot because, you know, they're obviously they're playing a lot of Victorian teams. What is it about the club and the way they kind of nurture these players? Like, is it a thing of we hold back, you know, even if it's a high draft pick, we'll hold them back for 50 games before they get a run in the seniors? Or is it just a more organic than that? If you, if you can play, you can play. Are you talking about the kids coming via the academy? Yeah. Well, not just via the academy, just like just their system for developing talent in general? Well, I think it's always, and it's a two-pronged question when you speak about drafting talent, because it's one thing to, you know, have a, an early draft pick and, you know, get the number one player or the, a top 10 player. You've then got to nurture them and, and develop them. And so what we've seen, you know, that, you know, one of the great examples is, of course, Jack Watts, who was taken with number one by Melbourne many moons ago, I think in 08, they just didn't have the development at the time mm. that this young kid needed to, you know, grow into the player that many expected him to become. So it's one thing to identify talent. It's another to be able to develop them. And it seems like the Swans have never really had an issue in the past 20 years, certainly under no. John Longmire in doing that. And, and as you say, they've got an eye as well for ha- perhaps taking a player from, from another club and letting them just blossom in whether it be another position or, you know, maybe it's sometimes players just need a fresh start and a little cuddle and a reminder that you can play really good footy. When it comes to the academy, it's a it's a polarising topic, isn't it? And you reference yeah. Eddie Maguire who used to just say how unfair it is. In reality, only a really tiny percentage of the kids that come through the academy will get onto the Swans list or indeed an AFL list. And the problem is, though, I guess, that some of them now are looking like bona fide stars, one being Callum Mills, who is a co-captain and just won the Swans Best and Fairest. He's an All-Australian. Isaac Heaney, you know, the dream poster boy with the beautiful blonde yeah. hair and he takes those <laughs> big marks and he's just the most marketable player out there, or at least one of them. And now you've got the likes of Errol Goulden, who's yeah. one of my favourites coming through, and also Braden Campbell. But, you know, they're four players out, out of a number who go through these academies who will never see the light of day in an AFL system. And given that New South Wales is still not a footy state, mm. they kind of need these academies because otherwise they're going to have an issue with the go-home factor. And we've seen it at yep. other clubs where they just can't the they factor. can't retain players. So yeah. whilst I know that some people get up in arms a little bit about having access to... Uh, the academy players, they have to bid on them at the draft. So they don't just get them for free anymore. They used yep. to. That's been that's been changed to uh, make it a bit more fair and equitable at the draft table. And I think really New South Wales, they needed for the time being at least. 100%. And I think it's like that balance, isn't it, where you're expanding the league, you're pushing into new territories. And so you need to... You need to create concessions to enable a team to get a foothold in a new market. And I think like 
you know, in terms of uh, like a, a code coming into a, a state where it's not the number one code, like the Swans are a shining example. Like you think of the way, you know, um, footy fans, like Aussie Rules fans celebrated at the drought-breaking grand final, even in, in 2012. And then you look at the way Melbourne Storm is reviled in the NRL. And I think like maybe it's the South Melbourne connection, but I do genuinely think that there is a, 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 a the, the AFL has been quite um, good at moving into these new territories in a way and building, like I, I do worry about like Gold Coast and, and GWS, like if they do fall off the perch, that maybe they'll lose any ground that they have gained. Well, I mean, it's arguable we're not, the Suns have made any ground yet. But the Swans, like what a shining example of what expansion can be, you know. Like now it's sort of just, like it just feels like the Swans have been there forever. Yeah, and they've done such a good job at getting a foothold in that Sydney market. And I think a market that doesn't necessarily turn up to sporting events. I know that that's an issue even with the NRL and maybe that's because it's more of a, of a TV sport. And I know that even across this first round, I think Foxtel and KO have had their best their best weekend ever. So there's certainly people that want to watch it, but it's another thing getting people to show up to the ground. But the Swans have done a magnificent job with that at the SCG. It's always pretty packed, but it's also because as we've alluded to throughout this podcast, they've usually been thereabouts. There's only been a couple of seasons where you know, in the last 20 years where they haven't made the eight. So they've been incredibly successful and and the support has been incredibly lucky to be able to go to the SCG and not just sing Sweet Caroline at, you know, what is it, quarter time and maybe three quarter time, but also usually see the Swans put on quite a show. Yeah. And it's also, I think what's underrated is succession plans very often do not work when it comes to coaches, you know, with Worsfold and Ben Rutten or... Um, you know, there's lots of other examples, uh, Malthouse and, and Buckley, you know, there was some acrimony there. But the Paul Ruse to Longmire handover was so smooth. And then was it a year later or in his first year? It was just you get a flag and it's like, oh, so it can be done. And then obviously Paul Ruse becomes the go-to guy when you want to have like a football director to sort of engineer or, or shepherd a new coach into the system. Yeah, and we saw that in Melbourne, didn't we, with Simon yeah. Goodwin as well. So he is a bit of a godfather in in that respect. So yeah, we love Paul Ruse at the <laughs> Sydney Swans, and I'm sure he's not lost to John Longmire at all. But it, it is interesting to see now how John Longmire even structures his team because, as you say, you have to give enough responsibility to the guys below you in order to say, you know, even if you're sick one day, they can step up and, and fill the role. And he's got some really senior assistants under him in Don Pike, who of course was formerly the Crows coach, took them to a grand final in 2017. He's kind of come in and he's been behind a lot of strategy and a lot of people credit him for the the quicker ball movement of the Swans over the past couple of seasons. Big Dean Cox, who used to be, you know, one of the enemies yeah, 20 years rival. ago. He's um he's a midfield coach and he would just be invaluable because I think, I don't know if I just forget, but I, yeah, I think I do forget how good Dean Cox was and how he kind of revolutionised that ruck role. Yeah, so there's some really strong uh, coaches in waiting or I guess John Pike's already been a coach under John Longmire as well and that's probably something that he's learnt from Paul Ruse as well that there's a lot of power in, in delegating and allowing the team to work as a whole. 
As a footy journalist, though, does having like a Justin Longmuir and a John Longmire, and there used to be a Ben oh. Rutten and a Brett Ratten, like how often did oh, that trip you? Yeah, on? no, and I've 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 mixed up Brad Scott and Chris Scott before, and now Brad's back. I'm not happy about that. Like, you know, it's just sometimes. Well, so just, it wasn't Kevin Sheedy putting his foot down; it was Sarah Ollie saying oh, we don't want Brad at the bottom. Yeah, no, it's and the thing is. People are very quick to point it out when you've got it wrong. Let me tell you that much. You know, oh, <laughs> your no. Twitter mentions. Yeah, just... <laughs> really? Footy fans online? <laughs> They're quick to point out mistakes? You yeah. don't say. No, I have to say, when Justin Longmuir came in and we had John Longmire, I'm going, oh, this isn't going to be good when the Swans first meet Fremantle, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, lastly, we have to touch on Buddy. Um, mm. You know, He's got to retire at some point, but none of us want to see it happen. What do you think? Like, obviously that move has been an out-and-out success, regardless of whether or not, you know, he was able to bring you a flag. Like, just what he's done in terms of keeping the Swans relevant, keeping them on the front pages. What does Buddy mean to you in terms of, like, I know that your your era was the 2005, but in terms of the last, like, decade of being a Swan supporter, where does Buddy sit in that? Well, I'm glad that you started off by saying there, Charlie, that, you think it has been a success because that's still something that people want to debate. I don't know how they can even debate that. It's obviously been a success without the ultimate success, but he's been, you know, to the 2016 grand final with them and more recently the 2021 grand final. Was he in? No, we played against him in 2014, yeah, no, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Yep. Um, and he's just put so many bums on seats and that is something that the Swans need because they need that star power to, to pull crowds because, as we said before, they don't always flock to sporting events in Sydney. But he's just been in a, a beautiful role model and a beautiful teammate and also a superstar. Like how regularly mm. has Buddy lit up a Thursday night or a Friday night at the SCG? He's made some of those pockets his own, some of those goals from like 70 or 60 metres. He's a human highlights reel and he's been such a consistent player and such a much-loved teammate. And really, I think, you know, while he probably had a more celebrated career at Hawthorne, in my eyes, he's very much a Hawthorne player and a Swans player. He's going to finish his career almost splitting 50-50 in a lot of um, statistics and, and games and goals. Um and he's just hard not to love the big bud. And when he is up and going, it's just the most amazing thing to see. And for him to have that crowning moment last year on the SCG, you know, when he kicks that thousandth goal and everyone just goes absolutely bunta and runs onto the SCG, that's one of the most iconic moments in our game's history. And it makes so much sense that it is centred around one of the icons of the game in Buddy Franklin. It was an absolute masterclass in charisma. No security, <laughs> nothing to protect him from 30,000 rabid fans. And he just controlled that group like he was like David Bowie, like he was Michael Hutchins, like he was a complete rock star. It was one of the, I remember because I watched that live and I was so anxious. I'm like, this is a bad situation. Like it felt like, you know, something terrible was going to go on. But then you just sort of see this rock star in the middle of it all, just kind of like enjoying the adulation, but also directing traffic and getting off the ground. I'm like, that is amazing. Like that is a dude who is loved. Like to, to be able to control like 30,000 people. I mean, he, you can't miss him. He's like six foot six and whatever, but like <laughs> it was just, it was so incredible. And it's just, I, I think it is 
if he if he has a middling season, maybe he only plays ten games or whatever, you know, they they manage him or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter because he's had that moment and he's just he's been an absolute superstar for so long. But I will put you on the spot, not entirely on the spot, because we do a little thing on Two Guys One Cup where we have to make a prediction mm. for twenty twenty three. Now you don't have to give me a posi- finishing position, but I'm going to say top six, middle six, bottom six. Where do you think the Swans finish? This year. Top six. Top six. Oh, I'm very <laughs> confident. Well, this is the time of the year you can be confident because we don't know how it's going to go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree. I mean, I think the Swans, like, definitely, like, I wouldn't be surprised top four. Even, like I said, there's six teams that I think could play off in a grand final this year. And the Swans do strike me as one of those teams where with someone like John Langmeyer behind this group, like you say, maybe there are some scars, but I, I feel like he will get their minds focused on the job this year pretty quick, smart. Yeah. The only thing I will say is it's always nice to get away with a win in round one. We are coming up against our bunny, or we are their yeah. bunny, in the Gold Coast Suns. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, they're, they've got but I number. think they've won three of the last four against us. <laughs> so I just hope that we are actually switched on coming into this round one match because it would be nice to just, you know, to really put that grand final in the rear vision mirror and go, oh, well, the last game we won. But don't you think you can, uh, like your colleague Damien Barrett also always talks about like round seven or eight, that's when you can start making some like definitive like uh, uh, claims about a side. Like round one, I mean, even the first quarter of a game, I don't even pay attention to. Like it's, you've always got to wait until the last quarter because a team can get a run on, kick seven goals to none in the first quarter and then they'll lose the match. And I feel like the season is like a, a bigger version of that. Like the first three or four rounds, who cares? Like Swans didn't win a game. Was it what was the season where you didn't win the first seven games and then you like charged towards the finals? That was 2015. So that was after we lost the 2014 grand final and we lost the first, did we lose the first seven games? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. It was something heinous, but then they went on to play finals, yeah. Yeah, so I wouldn't stress. I wouldn't stress about losing to the Gold Coast, which you're definitely going to do <laughs> round one. Yeah, I so, know. Pencil that one in. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on Two Guys, One Cup. Good luck to the Swans this year and good luck with all your media commitments. I look forward to uh, hearing you up at the crack of dawn on <laughs> AFL Daily. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. We do record those ones very early.